We continue our sermon series in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Also, in our church app, there is a sermon listening guide that you can pull up that has an outline, also has the scripture printed there as well. I'll just warn you, this is a very long section of scripture. Uh, This is Peter's sermon right after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came down. It's a beautiful sermon. So we're going to read the whole thing. Can't break this one up. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Several years ago, a Dutch man petitioned a Dutch court to officially change his date of birth. He was a motivational speaker. He was a pleasure seeker. And he wanted his official documentation to match his physical and mental state of fitness, which he thought was 20 years younger than his age. What prompted this or what motivated him to do this was the online dating sites where when he would reveal that he was 69 years old, it cut down on his chances. In an interview, this is what he said. I feel young. I am in great shape. And I want this to be legally recognized. Now, surprise, surprise, the court rejected his petition. But they did so in a really kind, thoughtful way. This is what they said. Amending his date of birth would cause 20 years of records to vanish from the register of births, deaths, marriages, and registered partnerships. This would have a variety of undesirable legal and societal implications. Now, there you have it. You hear that, and you probably think, I can't believe somebody would attempt this. I mean, this is, that's just crazy. That's psychological. Why would somebody do such a thing? Now, while this is an extreme case, what I want you to see at the core of this request, at the core of this crazy story, is the struggle of every human heart. And that is, am I going to align my life with objective reality? Or am I going to align my life with a fabricated alternate reality? Am I going to live according to what is objectively true, or am I going to live according to something fabricated that's an alternate reality? These questions are actually at the core of Peter's sermon. What reality are you living in light of? What reality are you living in light of? First, a reality that has been promised. Peter's sermon is filled with Old Testament prophecies that tell the crowd that is gathered at Pentecost that's explaining the very events that they've seen. Seven weeks earlier, death and resurrection of Christ, all the way to that very moment in the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, Peter is pulling all these Old Testament prophecies to say, you are experiencing what God said would happen. 
You're experiencing what God said would happen. He starts with the prophet Joel. And Joel prophesies about two major events. First, verses 19 to 20. And recognize that what Joel wrote was written approximately 800 years before this sermon that Peter gives at Pentecost. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. As Jesus hung on the cross, the gospel of Mark tells us that from noon until 3 p.m., darkness covered the land. The sun turned dark. And it's very likely that later that afternoon, that the full moon rose blood red because of that very abnormal darkness in the middle of the day. The moon turned to blood. Joel is prophesying about the death of Christ. And then the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, that there was an earthquake. The earth shook, the rocks split, very likely smoke, and I mean, it was very much a a, a physical, material, visual reality of what happened when Jesus died. 800 years before it happened, the prophet Joel told of it. This great and magnificent day of the Lord that he prophesied about. Seven weeks earlier, before this sermon at Pentecost, was speaking of Jesus' crucifixion his death on the cross. 800 years before it happened, God put it in writing to say this is going to happen. Second event that Joel prophesies about is actually the event of Pentecost, verses 17 to 18. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams on on my male servants, female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. The point of that is least to greatest, young and old. God would pour out his spirit on his people. 800 years before it happened, God put it in writing that it would happen through the prophet Joel. Now, if I stood in the center of the St. John's Town Center with a megaphone and I started to proclaim that the world's coming to an end in 24 hours, so get right with God, get right with all of your family, loved ones that you're at odds with, what would you think? You'd think I was crazy. Looney Ben has taken over Keith. He's drunk, he's high, he's, I don't know. He's psychological, mentally, something's off. That's what happened after the Spirit poured out at Pentecost. The people said, this is crazy. These people are drunk. Except the difference, if I stood in the St. John's Town Center and said that, The difference is, and this is how Peter responds to them. He says, no, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. And on top of that, what you're seeing 
is exactly what God told you would happen. And it's in writing. And so he talks first with Joel, the prophet. And then he, he's going to quote the Psalms two different times. He says, listen, God promised this was going to happen. He put it in writing. So what you're experiencing is not crazy. It's just the fulfillment of God's promise. Now let's return to the question. What reality are you living in light of? Are you living in light of a reality that you have fabricated and patched together? Are you living in light of a reality that your favorite modern-day philosopher has unveiled on a podcast? Are you living in light of a reality that's constructed through social media and advertising? Are you living in light of a reality that's communicated through your favorite news outlet? Or are you living in light of the reality that God promised centuries ago? Several years ago, a company based in St. Petersburg, Florida, called Square Mouth, hid the instructions for claiming $10,000 worth of cash in their travel insurance policy. They were going to do this for a year, hide this $10,000 of cash award, prize, in their travel policy that people would purchase, their insurance policy, highly unlikely thinking that anybody would read the fine print. And they were going to do this for a year. The, the pay, it pays to read section was on page seven of a nearly 4,000-word document. And so they didn't expect, actually one day into this new cash prize offer, that a high school teacher named Donalyn Andrews, who called herself a nerd and who reads every bit of fine print, whether it's a software user agreement, whether it's a travel insurance policy, she printed it out, she read it, she got to that section that says, Contact the company if you want to, you know, claim your $10,000. She contacted the company and she got $10,000. Now, think about the ways that this high school teacher could have tried to get $10,000. She could have tried to rob a bank. She could have uh, gone to identity theft, got somebody's identity and siphoned their account for $10,000. She could have gotten a night job as a, as a waiter, a waitress, a server, until she earned $10,000. Or she could read the promise from this company of $10,000 and receive the promised gift. Peter is speaking to these people, saying the gift of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit was promised to you centuries ago. And God put it in writing through the prophet Joel, through the Psalms, and elsewhere. And you can read of it, and you can receive the gift. He says in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord reads of this gift of Jesus, the Messiah, this gift of the Holy Spirit, sees, to, sees it come to fruition. Hundreds of years later, receive the gift. 
and be saved? What reality are you living in light of? First, it's a reality that has been promised and fulfilled in Jesus. But second, it's a reality that is objective. It's objective. Peter goes on to speak of Jesus' resurrection. Says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The word here is birth pains. So it reads, God raised him up, losing the, loosing the birth pains of death. Death is described as birth pains. When a woman goes into labor, a baby comes out. When Jesus went into the grave, when he died and went into the grave, there was no question that he was coming out of that grave for two reasons. The first is that death had no power over him. That literally no, death had no power over him. The way that verse 24 reads is this. If God would not have loosened, loosened the grip of death, on Jesus so that he could rise from the dead, that Jesus would have prematurely shattered it right there. Now, he's not gonna shatter death permanently until he returns a second time. But that's the kind of power he has, that if God wouldn't have loosened the grip of death, Jesus would have shattered it right there. Death had no power over him. Death could not hold him. That's the first reason that he came out of the grave. But second, he came out of the grave because God said he would. And that's what Peter goes to in the Psalms. From Psalm 16, Peter quotes in Acts chapter two, verse 27, a Psalm written by David that speaks about David, except for one of the verses in that Psalm, verse 10. Verse 27 in Acts two, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter's making the point here that clearly David wasn't talking about himself because he goes on in verse 29 to say, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter says, listen, you all know where David's tomb is. You can go dig it up, find the bones. And he's not there. David wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about the resurrection of Christ. Verses 30 and 31, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And not only does David speak of Christ's resurrection, he speaks of his ascension. Quoting from Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, in Psalm 110 in the Hebrew, it's the first Lord speaks of the one great God of Israel. The second Lord is a word that speaks of one who is greater than the individual speaking, which was David. That's saying, God said to Jesus, 
Jesus, after you rise from the dead, you're gonna ascend to my right hand, I'm gonna give you the gift of the Spirit, and you're gonna pour it out on your people. This was all prophesied. This was all prophesied to happen. Peter says, and this is the point he's making, this is an objective reality. This is objective historical fact. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We witness this historical fact, this historical truth. The Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, that he, Jesus, was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the one who preached this sermon in Acts 2. Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The key there is that he appeared to 500 people at one time, and most were still alive when this was written by Paul. So if it was a fabricated reality, if it was a fabricated story, there would have been many people that would have pointed out, this is not true. We were there. We didn't see this. But no, this was objective historical reality. Either Jesus' resurrection happened or it didn't. He either rose from the dead or he didn't. But it can't mean that his resurrection can be true for one person and not true for another. It doesn't fall into the realm of subjectivity where it's true for you but not true for me. No, it's a historical fact. Sean McDowell conducted an experiment with his students to try to illustrate this. He filled up a jar full of marbles, and he had his students guess how many marbles were in the jar. And so they guessed, 221, 168, so on, so on. And then he told them at the end, after they had all guessed, he said, how, he told them how many marbles were in the jar, 188. And he said, which was closest to being right? And they said, well, the 168 was the closest, but what they understood and accepted was that the number of marbles in the jar was an objective fact. It wasn't a subjective reality that was based on personal preference. So then he took out a bunch of Starburst candies, and he handed all these Starburst candies out to his students, and he said, which flavor is right? And as you might expect, they all said, well, that's just a nonsense question because rightness on flavor is all based on personal preference. So then he took it the next step. He said, you're right. The, the flavor is based on personal preference. It's not an objective fact. It's, it's subjective to the person, right? So then he took it the next step. And he asked, are religious claims objective facts like the number of marbles in a jar or are they only a matter of personal opinion like one's candy preference? Many of his students placed religious claims in the category of candy preference. And so he went on to explain the objective claims of Christianity that Jesus' resurrection is an objective historical fact. Now, 
some people reject that historical fact. But it can't be in the category of that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. It is history. Either Jesus was in the tomb after the third day or he was not in the tomb. There's no middle ground. And so the question becomes, are you living your life in light of that objective reality? Or are you living your life in light of some sort of subjective reality that maybe you have fabricated or it could be born out of personal preference? Jesus' resurrection is historical. It's history. And you have to look at that and make a decision. Am I going to live my life in light of that reality or am I going to create a fabricated reality? That leads us to the, the third point, that if reality is what God has promised for centuries, reality is objective in Jesus' resurrection, then if those two are true, then it demands a response. And that's what happens as Peter is preaching his sermon. He finishes and the people respond, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. What does that mean? It's a phrase that means that they were greatly troubled. I mean, they heard this news. They were greatly troubled. Why were they greatly troubled? Because of what Peter laid at their feet. And what he laid at their feet was verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says you killed Jesus. You killed the Messiah that God sent to save you. You handed them over to the Roman authorities. That's why they were greatly troubled. They realized Jesus is alive. His resurrection is objective historical fact. We killed him. Now what do we do? We're greatly troubled. What's important to see here is that the sin that Peter lays at their feet is the rejection of Jesus not a list of their behavioral sins, which could have been fully populated. That list could have been long. Why is this important to see? Because behavioral sin is always the result of a functional rejection of Jesus. Behavioral sin, whatever that list looks like for you, is always a functional rejection of Jesus. They had fabricated, in their minds, a political savior. They had fabricated a political Jesus that was gonna kick the Romans out and establish Israel. And when Jesus didn't do that and didn't match up to their expectations and who they thought he was, then they got angry and killed him. Then their sin moved to the behavioral realm of getting angry and killing Jesus. But it was all because their understanding of who Jesus was was not matching up to the reality of who Jesus was, who they thought he was. 
is not who he was. Peter, the close, say closest he gets to behavioral sin in this passage is towards the end of his sermon in verse 40. When he says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, here it is, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Right? That, that's about the closest Peter gets to describing immorality, behavioral sin. He calls it a crooked generation. Now that word crooked in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, is scolios. It's where we get scoliosis, okay? crookedness. Behavior is crooked when understanding of who Jesus is is crooked. In other words, behavioral sin or behavioral crookedness is the result of a crooked understanding of who Jesus is. Let me give you a few examples of this. If you functionally view Jesus as accuser rather than advocate, meaning that Jesus sees your sin, points it out constantly, and condemns you for it, versus he defends you and advocates for you when you do sin, then you'll have a crooked view of where affirmation comes from. You won't run to Jesus for affirmation because you don't see him as He's accuser. You'll run to other places for affirmation other than Jesus, which leads to a whole list of crooked behaviors. Or, if you functionally view Jesus as a cosmic killjoy rather than a joy giver, meaning that, that Jesus just smothers and stifles your life with all his rules, then you'll be crooked on where joy comes from. And instead of seeking joy in Jesus, you'll seek joy outside of Jesus, which, which lends to a whole list of crooked behaviors. Or, if you functionally view Jesus as a good teacher, just merely a good teacher and a good moral example, but not the all-powerful one at the right hand of God who is reigning over the whole world, then you will have a crooked view on who is in control of the world because Jesus is just merely a good teacher and a good moral example. And so you won't look to Jesus as the one who's in control. You will seek control elsewhere, which lends to a whole bunch of crooked behaviors. Right? The point is this. Behavioral change happens when you get straight on who Jesus is. That's the takeaway. That behavioral change happens when you get straight on who Jesus is. So they're cut to the heart. They're greatly troubled. They say, brothers, what shall we do? And here's how Peter answers them in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At the heart of repentance is getting straight on who Jesus is. Repentance is aligning yourself with reality. Repentance is simply aligning your life with what is true, what is real. Specifically, what is real about Jesus and what is true about Jesus. I've talked a number of times recently about this relational repentance. 
that repentance is relational, that it's, it's, it's focused on relationship. At the heart of every sinful behavior is a relational rejection of Jesus. And therefore, what repentance is, is getting straight on who Jesus is and turning to Jesus. Before you ever commit a behavioral sin, you have rejected, in that moment, you've rejected Jesus in some way. For example, if you speak a half-truth or you speak a little white lie to try to get something you want or to try to manipulate a situation to happen how you want it, right? In that moment, you have rejected Jesus as the one who is sovereignly in control and all-powerful. And because you reject him, then you turn to having to manipulate the situation, control the situation. But it started with a rejection of Jesus and who he is in that moment. When you turn to Jesus, when you repent and turn to him, he forgives you. And if it's the first time you've turned to Jesus, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to point you over and over to Jesus, to align you with Jesus, to align you with reality so that you're living in light of reality, the reality of who Jesus is. The truth of the matter is we all, all of us, live in moments, in seasons, at different times according to fabricated alternate realities. We live, to, we live according to a, a reality fabricated by social media, by politics, by news outlets, by our emotions. There's so many things that frame an alternate reality that we align our lives with, which leads to crooked behavior and crookedness, and it leads to a mess. Repentance is simply aligning your life with reality, with who Jesus is. Dr. Jerome Frank, he was the professor of psychiatry at John, Johns Hopkins Medical School. He talks about, or he talked about, our assumptive world, meaning that we all make assumptions about life. We make assumptions about God. We make assumptions about ourselves, about others, about the way things are. We make assumptions about what we think reality is. And then he said this, spot on. When our assumptions are true to reality, we live relatively happy, well-adjusted lives. But when our assumptions are distant from reality, we become confused and angry and disillusioned. At the center of reality, and this can't be any more important over the past year and a half than it has been in a long time. At the center of reality is the resurrected Christ. That is reality in a world right now that has all kinds of alternate realities circulating, fabricated, running all over the place, at the center of reality is the resurrected Christ who's gonna return one day. And the call from Peter and the call today is to align your life with that reality, with the resurrected Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess that every day, every moment, we align our lives 
with, with various forms of a fabricated alternate reality that leads to all kinds of crookedness. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you draw us back to reality, which is your resurrected son, Jesus Christ, alive on the throne and returning one day soon. Father, would our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our school, our work, the way we entertain, our recreation, would everything align with the reality of your resurrected son, Jesus. Father, as we close now in worship, as we sing, we sing to you. And as we sing, Father, Holy Spirit, Son, would you become more real than everything around us? And as we leave here today, would you be more real to us than the things we can even see, taste, and touch. And we long for that day when, when that unseen reality that we embrace now by faith, that one day it will become a visible reality. Would you prepare us for that day? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.